Great, Nigel, thank you. Uh, if you could have that passage uh, that we had read earlier, open in front of you, that would be uh, really helpful for me. Uh, it's Romans chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through to 20. Uh, it's on page uh, 1130, if uh, the uh, num- page numbers are helpful. Uh, it's a complicated passage. You know, you know it's bad when you open the commentaries on the Tuesday morning and uh, you've got a quote from John Calvin saying, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. Uh, so we're going to need special help tonight uh, from the Holy Spirit. So let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Uh, Lord God, this is a difficult passage and uh, large parts of it just seem pretty irrelevant <laughs> to where we are. Uh, we're not Jewish We're not engaging with Paul in the same way that they were. Uh, And yet, uh, we believe that your word still has uh, light to bring us. Um, We're reminded, even in these verses, the great privilege that it was of the Jewish nation uh, to be given your word. And we pray that we wouldn't despise it uh, this evening. We pray that you'd help me as I speak, help us as we listen to uh, hear your word for us uh, this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start by introducing you to a couple of fictional uh, members of our evening congregation. Uh, on one hand, we've got Pete. Pete has grown up in a Christian family. Uh, his dad was a vicar. Uh, he was the CE president when he was at uni. Uh, he's uh, in a home group, has been in a home group for years. He always turns up without failing. Uh, he knows that the answer in church is always Jesus. Uh, he is just, he's a model Christian in lots of ways, it seems. Uh, Ian, on the other hand, is a little bit different. Um, Ian comes from a a slightly less respectable background, shall we say. A bit of a broken home. Uh, He's got a bit of an attitude problem. He's not always the most friendly guy if you meet him. Uh, He's had a bit of trouble with the police. Uh, He always smells a bit of weed when he comes into church. And there's just that suspicion that um, there's something not quite, uh, quite right there. Ian and Pete... Which of those two guys is most in need of Jesus, do you think? Which of those? Pete, the vicar's son, Ian, the guy with the drugs problem and the police record. Well, I guess if you're like me, instinctively most of us probably think that Ian's the guy. He's got the big problems. I mean, he's got the drugs issue, hasn't he? He's got the problem, uh, problem of the, uh, with the police. Uh, Pete looks pretty squeaky clean. He's got a great family background. He's always in church, isn't he? And, you know, he sounds like a pretty good guy. And yet the story of the Bible, the whole message of Romans, as we've been seeing, is that actually in God's eyes, both, uh, there's no difference. Uh, both of these guys... Uh, need Jesus. They need the gospel. doesn't matter about their family background or their church attendance even. Uh, All of us, the Bible says, have turned our back on God and we deserve his judgment. Uh, Not a single one of us can say that we're good enough for God. Each of us needs Jesus just as much as anyone else. Uh, If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that uh, we're working through the book of Romans. And uh, so far, Paul has been building up his case, really, against the whole of humanity. And he's been building this picture and showing ruthlessly how, basically, all of us are in the same boat. We've rejected God, uh, and we've fallen foul of him, and we're facing his wrath. Something has gone deeply, deeply wrong. 
And tonight, he's really getting to the end of things. He's building up his case, and he's kicking away every possible crutch that we might use to, to rely on uh, to get away uh, from God's judgment. Uh, it is a complicated passage. Uh, I'm going to tackle it in two sections. The first, we're going to look at the, the first half, uh, 1 to 8, uh, which Paul kind of deals with the objections of his Jewish listeners who've been uh, listening in to all uh, that he's been saying. Uh, and then we're going to move on and, and look at how he kind of closes his argument. How does he draw it all together to show that all of us are in the same boat? Let's look first, shall we, at uh, God's faithfulness and the Jewish people. God's faithfulness and the Jewish people, verses uh, 1 through to 8. Uh, I was told a few years ago when I was doing an evangelistic course uh, that the first step in effective evangelism uh, is to put yourself in your listeners' shoes. Uh, really, really good advice. Try and place yourself in their position. Uh, think about where they're coming from. Uh, and Paul does exactly that uh, here. Uh, essentially, this whole first section is a kind of imaginary conversation. Uh, Paul is imagining what a typical Jewish listener is going to raise as an objection for him. If he's sitting there listening to all this or reading it through and thinking, hey, what about, what about this? But, but what about this? It's in a kind of imaginary conversation. It was quite common in the ancient world for sort of philosophers and teachers to, to, to have these kind of dialogues. And that's exactly what Paul's doing uh, here. Uh, he's been proving, or trying to prove at least, that everyone without exception has turned against God and deserves his judgment. Uh, and Paul here, I think, identifies three uh, kind of big objections that the Jew, Jewish listeners uh, might have. Uh, the first question uh, he comes up, or je- objection, is uh, in verse 1, he says. So what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Uh, basically, why, wh- why bother being a Jew at all if everyone is basically in the same boat? Is there any point to it? Any value to it? And Paul's answer is very simple. No, that there's great value in being a Jew. Verse 2, much in every way. Uh, the reason uh, he gives, uh, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. There is great value in being a member of the Jewish people, says Paul, because it was to the Jews that God entrusted uh, his word. Uh, many years ago, when our present queen was, uh, uh, was crowned, uh, at the service she was given a Bible uh, with the words, we give you this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Huge statement to make, isn't it? Uh, And yet, uh, it is God's word that is the most valuable thing that we have in creation. Nothing uh, beats it. And astonishingly, says Paul, to the Jews alone had God first uh, entrusted those words. Uh, No nation in their position could consider themselves not to be privileged. Uh, If they'd been given God's word, of course there is value in being a member of that people group. Uh, Raises the question for us, doesn't it? In our own age, we're so fortunate to enjoy easy access to uh, God's word in a way that people through history across the globe uh, cannot enjoy. Uh, Do we treat it as the same privilege uh, that Paul does? I don't know. Perhaps we should uh, consider that just in passing. But what is clear, however, as Paul goes on, is that even though the Jews had possessed God's word uh, from the very start, uh, unfortunately, not all of them had listened to it uh, and obeyed it. 
And so as a just consequence of that, they had too had come under uh, God's uh, righteous judgment. Uh, I guess for Paul, uh, we could see that most clearly in the new, in, when he was writing in the way that they'd rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, these are the people who'd had all the Messianic promises. Uh, they'd, got, they'd heard the prophets, they'd seen there, they'd read their, uh, their writings. And yet when the Messiah came, they couldn't see him. Uh, John, St. John puts it, doesn't he, in the first uh, chapter. Uh, Jesus, he came to that which was his own, and yet his own did not receive him. Uh, the sad story, they had proved unfaithful. Uh, and, uh, and yet the Old Testament says that at the heart of God's revelation of himself uh, to the Jewish people uh, was the truth that God is always true to himself and to his promises. You can read it in Exodus chapter 34. There's a great bit right at the very start of that chapter where God declares about his steadfast love, his faithfulness uh, to his covenant promises. And Paul's next uh, imaginary question, hypothetical question, if we want to put it like that, focuses on on this issue. Uh, If God's people who have his word can't keep it, isn't God being unfaithful to that same word uh, if he then goes on and condemns them? Uh, Verse 3 he says, what if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Again, you know what his answer is going to be. It's clear. Certainly not. Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. At verse 4. Uh, Paul's answer is clear. Uh, God is always true to whatever he says. Uh, when God condemns the Jews along with the rest of humanity, uh, he's simply being true to what he had promised in his word. Uh, even if everyone else turns out to be a liar, God will always Be true to what he says. He's always consistent. He's always faithful to his word. He doesn't say something, then go back on it, change his mind. Uh, He is consistent. Uh, And his consistency, his faithfulness to his word, is seen just as much when he judges humanity as it is when he saves us as well. Uh, And to illustrate his point... um, Paul turns to an example that the Jews would have been very, very familiar with. Uh, an example from the life of uh, probably Israel's greatest king, uh, King David. And that's the, where the quote comes from in, uh, in verse 4. Uh, David, some of you all know, uh, was Israel's greatest king. Uh, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. Great description uh, that I'm sure we'd, we would love to have. Uh, and yet even David, the man after God's own heart, Uh, was a man whose life was stained with some terrible, terrible deeds. Uh, Perhaps most notably, uh, most famously, uh, there was uh, the uh, the incident with Bathsheba. Uh, David uh, saw uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his his, uh, soldiers. Uh, Not only did he commit adultery with her, he arranged for Uriah uh, to be murdered as well. Uh, Dreadful sin. Uh, And in response, in repentance, after he was confronted uh, by the prophet, uh, David wrote Psalm 51. And this is exactly where uh, where Paul is quoting from. Here, uh, what does he say? Psalm 51. uh, That you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. That's David speaking about God. Uh, You may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. As you see, David saw uh, this truth that uh, Paul has been explaining 
God is just as faithful to his word uh, when he judges sin as he is when he fulfills his salvation promises. Uh, We can never say that God's judgment is in some way unfair or uh, it's untrue to his word. It isn't. God is simply being faithful to what uh, he said. Well, Paul's opponent's got a third question uh, for us. Uh, Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, uh, what shall we say? Uh, That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Essentially, what he's saying is, well, is it a case of when we sin? It's simply an opportunity for God to show us just how just and merciful he is. Basically, isn't he unjust if he punishes us? It's really quite devious, isn't it, when you think about it? Again, Paul is clear. No, certainly not, verse 6. In fact, actually, he responds with a question of his own, do you see? Uh, Verse 6. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Uh, If being judge of a sinful world makes God unjust, uh, then how on earth can he judge at all? The Jews knew... Uh, They believed from ancient uh, times that God was going to one day judge the world. If in doing so, God is somehow unjust, that that whole thing just falls apart. It's completely ridiculous. Uh, Paul takes it as a given that God is the judge of all. And when he judges, his judgments are just and true. It's absolute nonsense to start claiming, as his opponents do here, that uh, somehow the worse that humans become, the better God looks. That seems to be kind of where they're going, isn't it? Verse 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Basically saying, well, actually, the worse I look, the better God looks. Shouldn't I be patted on the back? Isn't that great? Ridiculous. Uh, The end never justifies the means. How can we say that evil brings glory to God? Terrible. Evil never glorifies God. Uh, And Paul says we should never pretend that it does. A terrible uh, conclusion uh, to come to. It's quite hard, isn't it, to follow his logic uh, here. It's, it's really quite, quite, uh, quite difficult. And I guess we might be tempted just to say, well, fair enough, it doesn't really apply to us. It's pretty difficult. We'll leave that to, uh, to the experts and uh, the people at the time uh, and move uh, swiftly on. But I do think there are two uh, points of application that really are quite relevant to us, actually. Uh, and the first is, I think this is a wonderful reminder of God's faithfulness. Uh, and it's an astounding faithfulness when we think about it. Uh, God gave his people his word from the beginning. Uh, He told them what he was like. He revealed his character to them. Uh, He gave them his covenant promises. And yet the whole story of the Old Testament, indeed the whole Bible, the whole of human history actually, is how uh, God's people have turned against him and have rejected him. God has remained faithful, and yet we, his people, have been unfaithful. God remains faithful to all his promises. Both the good promises, the ones that we might like, the ones about salvation, the sending the Messiah, and the bad promises, if we want to put it like that. The promises of judgment. He's faithful. He's true. And he remains faithful and true even when we as his people are not. He never changes. Secondly, it is, I think, a reminder also of the sheer deviousness of the human heart. Uh, which tries to justify sin uh, and to evade 
uh, God's judgment. I've just been watching the uh, Six Nations match uh, this afternoon. It wasn't a great match, so uh, it didn't really miss much. Uh, But I was struck how if you throw the ball to the winger, uh, the winger will do everything he can to try and evade uh, the the defence. Even if they get him into kind of sort of choke tackle, he keeps wriggling and wriggling and wriggling to try and break three. Uh, And you get that kind of sense, I think, here in this passage. Uh, It's like we just keep trying to evade God's tackle. Uh, He's got us, he's grabbed us, we can't get away from it. And yet we'll do anything we can to escape from his just and righteous judgment and his exposure of our sin. Even worse, there's a kind of hint at the end of this passage uh, that in some way uh, kind of we can presume on God's grace. There's an old anecdote of, uh, of a German philosopher dying a long time ago, and apparently on his deathbed he said these dreadful words, well, God will forgive me because that's his job. God will forgive me, that's his job. There's a kind of hint of that here, I think. Doesn't this tell us something about the deceitfulness of the human heart, the wickedness, the way that we will try and evade God at any opportunity, and then even when he's got us, to presume on his love and his mercy? Yes, God is loving and merciful, but we should never presume that he will ignore our sin. That's a terrible mistake to make. Like David, like Paul, we should listen to his word, acknowledge our unfaithfulness, and his faithfulness, and come to him in repentance. Let's move on to the second bit. We've seen uh, God's uh, faithfulness. Let's look at the second half of our passage, uh, which explains for us how we, as the world, have been unfaithful. Um, I don't know if you're a a fan of kind of legal dramas on uh, TV or in books, uh, but you can probably picture the scene, can't you? There's a sort of tense uh, courtroom uh, and the prosecution lawyer is on his, uh, on his hind legs and uh, making his closing speech. He's drawing together all the threads, all the uh, evidence, every single bit of argument that he can pull together uh, to lay down uh, his, uh, his uh, conviction uh, to secure that the prisoner in the dock uh, is guilty. And it's that same kind of image that we have here as we come to uh, the end of, uh, of this, uh, this section. Uh, Paul is like that lawyer. He's here. He's laying out the evidence again and again before the jury, uh, before the judge, who is God. And the people in the dock, that's you and me. That's us. Uh, That's the world. We're the ones uh, on trial before God, our maker and judge. Well, what's the charge sheet uh, that we face? Well, Paul uh, uh, tells us it's in uh, in verse uh, 9 for us. Uh, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Uh, That's the charge. All of us, whether we are, we call ourselves Jews, whether we're Gentiles, whoever we happen to be, all alike are under sin. Uh, The picture that he gives us is the idea of sin as kind of like a cruel tyrant, despot, imprisoning uh, the human race, crushing us under judgment and guilt. And there's not a single person uh, who can escape. It's a big charge. What's his evidence uh, for it? Uh, Well, he gives us several uh, quotes from the Old Testament scriptures to prove uh, his point. Uh, This point that the whole world alike demonstrates its rebellion uh, against God. Uh, And these quotes all do it in a slightly different way. It's quite hard, really, to categorize them. 
uh, and to sort of see a theme. But, but I do think there are three truths that, that stand out for us, and I just want to draw them out uh, for us. Firstly, it seems to me that these quotes show for us how the essence of sin is to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Uh, Paul says, verse 11, uh, there's no one, uh, right, uh, verse 10 even, no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Uh, right at the end of the quotes, verse 18, uh, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, it's a dreadful picture, isn't it? None of us seek God. None of us fear him in the way that we should do. Uh, William Temple, an Archbishop of Canterbury, many, many uh, years ago, uh, defined it like this. He said, uh, sin is, is this. It's saying, I am the center of the world that I see. Uh, where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Basically, it's me at the center and God pushed out to the peripheries. Uh, sin is us occupying that place which God alone deserves to have. Uh, and it's refusing to give him the glory and the honor uh, that he deserves. The essence of sin, says Paul, dethroning God, enthroning ourselves. Uh, secondly, Paul demonstrates here, doesn't he, how uh, the extent to which sin has taken hold of us. Uh, you can see, can't you, from verses uh, 13 through to 17, he lists all these different body parts uh, in all kinds of different ways. It's a little bit strange, but I think the combined effect, when you take them all together, uh, is to show us just how extensive sin's corruption is. Uh, there's not a single part of our constitution that sin has not stained. Uh, whether it's our mouths, our mouths that were created uh, to, uh, to, to praise God, that now speak curses and bitterness. Verse 14. Maybe it's the feet that were designed to walk in the way of peace that now run to violence, verse 15. Uh, maybe it's our eyes, the eyes that were made to look for God, instead go away seeking other things, uh, verse 18. Explains for us, doesn't it, why there's no simple quick fix to the problem of sin, whether it's in our lives or in society. Uh, it's not a question of just saying to people, just try, uh, turn over a new leaf, try a little bit harder, or getting a new government, for example. Uh, sin is so deep-rooted in us. It's why it's, uh, it, it's a fallacy to claim that human nature is essentially good, as some people try to do. Uh, it's ridiculous. It's not. Uh, we are stained with sin. Our hearts are against God. Uh, the problem is far worse. It's far more deep-rooted than we can ever possibly imagine. Only a radical change of our hearts uh, will make us better. And only God can do that. Uh, we can see the extent, can't we, to which sin has taken hold of us. And thirdly, I think Paul demonstrates for us just how we see that sin embraces everyone. There's not a single person uh, who can exempt themselves uh, from this charge. Uh, verses 10 to 12 again. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. The repetition just keeps hammering it home, doesn't it? No one, no one, all, all. Uh, not a single person who has ever lived can say that they have lived in conformity to God's law in its entirety. 
Uh, There's no one who can escape the charges that Paul makes here. Every single one of us can look back on our lives and say with honesty, if we're being honest, that we have fallen short of God's standards. We have not lived for his praise and glory. Uh, There are many things uh, that we uh, look back in shame on. There's an old story about, uh, told about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, it's said that he once played a practical joke on 12 of his most powerful friends. Uh, he sent them a telegram, each of them a telegram, uh, saying simply, flee, all is discovered. Uh, and the story goes that apparently within hours, six of them had left the country and the remaining six were planning to uh, make their escape. Uh, he sent it to 12 of his friends, he just did it to see what the reaction was. And yet it just goes to show, doesn't it, that deep down every single one of us has got things that we are deeply, deeply ashamed of. We know that these words are true. We know that we haven't lived for God. We haven't uh, honoured him uh, as our Lord. Uh, Sin embraces every single one of us. It's a devastating picture, isn't it? It's no wonder that Paul can say right at the end of it, verse 19, that every mouth is silenced. There's just no defense. We, we, you know, it's like we just have to stop bleating. We can't say anything. Uh, we're there and we're convicted. In the light of what Paul has to say, there's very little we can really come back with. We've got no defense. Uh, the army have a saying that ignorance is no excuse. Uh, we can say the same. Paul, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we saw, didn't we, how uh, Paul said that God's divine power, his attributes have been made known uh, in the world. Uh, To the Jews, we've just seen that God's made himself known through his word. And we know how in fullness he's made himself known in the living word, the Lord Jesus. None of us have any excuse. We can't claim ignorance that we didn't know about this. And even more than that, says Paul, there's nothing that we can do by ourselves to make it better. Uh, Verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious uh, of sin. Uh, No attempt to be good or to earn our salvation will work. Uh, When we face the charge of the law, every mouth is silenced. My mouth, your mouth. We've got no defense. It's guilty as charged. It's a fair cop. Well, how should we respond to Paul's exposure if we can't uh, say a great deal in response to it? I guess, firstly, we should simply accept it. Uh, We've seen, haven't we, the first uh, half of our passage, how it's just so symptomatic of the human heart to uh, try an avoidance strategy. There's always someone else to blame for sin, isn't there? Uh, Maybe it's our parents' fault. Well, it's not my fault. They brought me up badly. Maybe it's our teacher's fault. Maybe it's society's fault. Maybe it's the internet's fault. No, it's our fault. (laughs) Sin is always our fault. Uh, Jesus said that it's what comes out of us that defiles us, all the things that come out of our hearts. Uh, and until we face up to that truth, uh, we can't really do anything about it. Uh, we will never uh, come to, uh, to, to uh, accept the cure. But secondly, if we've heard this diagnosis, uh, then instead of running away from God, we should run to him. He alone is the one who can sort us out. He's got the medicine Uh, to cure us. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer whose life was absolutely transformed by reading uh, through the book of Romans, uh, said that the whole purpose of God's law is to drive us to Christ, 
to seek his grace and forgiveness because he's the only person who can, who can give us it. It shouldn't drive us away from him. It should drive us ever closer uh, to him. It's right that as we read these words, we should despair. We should be sitting here thinking, wow, it's bad. It's really bad. It's really, really, really bad. And yet the great news, as we're going to see in more detail next week, is that God has been faithful to his promises. Uh, By sending the Lord Jesus to bear our sin, to die in our place, he's made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Uh, It's not about living a squeaky clean life or going to church week in, week out. It's about knowing Jesus. Jesus is the one who by his death uh, makes us right with God. Uh, There's an old pastor uh, who had a saying, uh, I am a great sinner, but I have a greater saviour. And that's the great truth of Romans. It is bad, but thank goodness Jesus has come and he's made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Let's pray, shall we? Well, Jesus, uh, we do read these words and we tremble at what they say. Uh, none of us has a defence. We uh, know that we're guilty. And yet we thank you so much that you are faithful. You're faithful both to your promise of judgment, but also to your promise of salvation, even though we are unfaithful. And we praise you for that. We praise you that you sent the Lord Jesus. Uh, And we pray that this evening we would come afresh to him, throw ourselves at his feet, ask for his forgiveness. Uh, And may you grant it to us and grant us that assurance, uh, that assurance that says we don't need to earn our salvation. It's given to us. Uh, by your grace. Uh, Thank you so much. It's bad. We are great sinners, but you are a greater saviour. Amen.